Let us read now in the scriptures of the beginning of the era of the kings. 1 Samuel chapter 8. And we will also then read from the New Testament. 1 Samuel chapter 8, page 278, if you're using the church um, edition of the Bible. Samuel was the last of the judges, as we saw a month ago. And so we read now of Samuel and the end of his uh, period of uh, leadership. Chapter 8, verse 1. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. <clears throat> and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel, so he prayed to the Lord. The Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king uh, who will reign over them will do. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. and They will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plough his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, and the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we shall be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, Listen to them, and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the men of Israel, Everyone is to go back to his time. And then in the next chapter, Saul is anointed the first king of Israel by Samuel. Now let's turn to the New Testament. Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. And we read 
from verse 1. And Samuel had warned the people of a king who would take and take and take. A king who would impoverish. And that was, in many respects, the characteristic of many of the earthly kings of Israel. But here now is a king. And he doesn't take. He's a king who gives. He's not a king who impoverishes. He's a king who blesses us. Let's read of King Jesus. Matthew 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks in them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks in the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. In Galilee. Amen. That's for our heads. Let us seek the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. Almighty and eternal God. You are the king of all the earth. The one who has made all things. The one who is over all things. And even at this time when awful things have been happening in the nations of the earth in the week that has passed, we remind ourselves again that you are sovereign, that you are the king, and that all the things that come to pass, those that happen within nature, those that happen due to the wickedness of men's hearts, all of those things in a way that we do not understand, are incorporated within your will, so that there is nothing that happens in the earth that is outside of your will, but also so that uh, you are not the author of evil or of evil doing. Lord God, we bless you as the sovereign one tonight, and we bless you tonight as the one who is holy and the one who is pure. The one who does good and not evil. Lord God, we bless you this evening for Jesus our King, whom you have appointed over all things. And we thank you that he is the fulfillment and the manifestation of those all that was anticipated in the kings of the Old Testament. These men who rose up and who took away from your people,
and who often acted selfishly and in a way that disadvantaged your people. How different is King Jesus coming riding on a colt into Jerusalem, coming as one gentle, coming as one who blesses, coming as one who saves, for that is what the word Hosanna meant. Save, Lord. And so, Lord Jesus, we come this evening and as we study this period and this era and consider this era of the Old Testament, the era of the kings, help us in understanding it, to look beyond it and to see the era of the king in which we now live. We pray that by your Spirit you would subdue each one of us to yourself and reign in our lives for your glory, for our good, that you would save us from our sins, that you would make us in your image, that we would be like you in your character, in your speech and in your conduct and in your deeds. Lord Jesus, have mercy upon us, for apart from you, we cannot be saved. Father in heaven, thank you for sending forth your Son into this world in the fullness of time. And thank you that with his death on the cross, salvation is now available to all. And thank you that with his return to heaven, the Holy Spirit has been poured out. The Spirit who convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment. The Spirit who draws us to faith in Christ. The Spirit who makes us like Christ. And so we pray for the work of salvation that is the work of the triune God to be going forward in our lives. Bless us now and give us ears to hear. Give me a tongue to speak of you, O God, tonight and of your King. And may our time together be for your glory and be for our profit. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope you have received a handout, and if you haven't, there are extra copies on the table, so please get up and get one, or else um, make it known to Ronnie that you don't have one, and he will provide you with one. We are doing this series, let me explain, for the benefit of those who are with us tonight as visitors. We're doing this series once a month, uh, which is called Getting to Grips with the Bible. We're doing another series alongside it, Getting to Grips with Prayer. And we're doing this very deliberately and intentionally because your spiritual well-being and my spiritual well-being depends upon prayer and the Word. In prayer, we come to God through Christ. And in the Word, uh, God is brought to us uh, through Christ. And so, it is vital that in our lives, if we are to be the saved men and women boys and girls, that we have the word of Christ and that we have prayer at the heart of our lives. And so to help us um, benefit from all of Scripture, because all of Scripture, every word, every dot, every tittle that we find in the pages of this book is the word of God. And to help us understand that and benefit from all of Scripture, we're doing this series, Getting to Grips with the Bible. Uh, and uh, my objective is, in 
uh, eight studies to take us through the Old Testament and to show the eras um, that mark that period uh, of history. We've thought already about the era of beginnings, uh, Genesis. We've thought about the era of the Exodus, when God brought a people that were the descendants of Abraham up out of Egypt through a mighty act of salvation, constituted them to be his church, and then led them through the desert under Moses. That brought us to the third era, the era of the conquest, where God now under Joshua would take these people into a land which was known as Canaan, where they were to dwell, where they were to worship him, and they were to serve him, and to live for him, uh, in covenant with him. And then the last time we came to the fourth era, the era of the judges, those who were saviors, raised up by God, because what happened in the land was, the people didn't do what the Lord had commanded them to do, which was to remove the false worship, and remove the unbelieving people, and separate themselves from them. Instead, they became involved with their gods, and they married with these people, and so a a cycle took place uh, of rebellion against the Lord, which brought ruin into their lives, and which then uh, brought um, uh, a rebuke of the Lord, Uh, And when the Lord's rebuke came through another nation, there was remorse, a sense of sorrow, not necessarily repentance, but remorse. And the Lord then had pity upon them and rescued them. And that pattern continued again and again uh, for uh, a period uh, of um, 400 uh, years. Now, tonight, in the fifth study, we come uh, to the era of uh, the kings. The era of the kings. But for a moment there I was without my sheet, uh, which would be rather disastrous. Uh, so, the era of the kings. Uh, and uh, this now is the next major era. Now, let me just uh, give, uh, as an introduction Just an overview of what God is doing here. God is going to raise up one who is a priest, a prophet, and a king. And it is going to be he who is going to save his people. He is the promised seed of the woman from Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. And already God has put in place the priestly ministry. Okay, in the era of the Exodus. And now, in this era of the kings, there is going to be a kingly ministry that is going to be established. The priestly ministry will lead to the Christ, the true priest. And the era of the kings will ultimately uh, lead to the everlasting king. And in this era also, the prophets are raised up who speak for God and they are going to lead to the last prophet whom you heard about this morning through Professor McCollum. Okay? 
So, it's a very significant period that we're looking at here. The era of the kings. Now, 1 Samuel is where we begin tonight. That's where we've reached as we are working our way through the books of Scripture. And you'll see tonight, if you look uh, at your sheet, um, and um, along the top, you'll see the Old Testament, and then under the Old Testament you have history, poetry, and prophecy. That's simply referring to the fact that the books of the Old Testament, some are history, some are poetry, and some are prophecy. And tonight, our major history book is going to be 1 Samuel, look down through the column, primary history, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings. Move across the column, and you'll see that there's also poetry that fits into this period. Psalms, written by David. Proverbs, written largely by Solomon, another of the kings. Ecclesiastes, written by King Solomon. The Song of Solomon, written by Solomon. And then we'll come later to look at the prophets who also fit in to this period. So there's a lot of things happening in this era of the kings. Now, let's get back to the left-hand side again and let's look at the date column now. Look at the period we're looking at. From 1052 before Christ and we're going right the way down to 586. Uh, that's a lengthy period uh, of time. Um, almost, um, well, over 400 uh, years. Almost 500 years. Now, um, in that period, we want to see then the development of the kings. And the first heading we have tonight is the United Kingdom. Okay, you'll remember that one, the United Kingdom, if you don't remember anything else. We're not referring to our own land today, we're referring to what was happening in 1052. Throughout the year of the Judges, and up to this point, you have 12 tribes. And they are loosely joined together. They worship together. They all have the same father. If you go back far enough, Jacob, and back before that, Isaac, back before that, Abraham. But up to this point, you couldn't call them a kingdom. And what now happens is they become united as a nation. And there are three key kings that are responsible for uniting the twelve tribes the church under their kingship. And if you look uh, at the uh, column which says the main figures, you'll see that these kings are Saul, David and Solomon. Period of 120 years. Each of them reigns for 40 years. Saul, 1052 to 1012. David, 1012 to, 10, to 972, Solomon from 972 to 932. Okay? Now, how does the whole um, era of the kings begin and develop? 
Well, it begins, and it's striking this in the passage that we read earlier this evening from 1 Samuel chapter 8. It begins with a wrong desire on the part of the people. God is going to give them a king eventually. But the people want a king not because God is king and they want someone to represent God. Remember we saw that this is a period when there is no king in Israel. People are doing whatever they want. And that comes out again in First Samuel chapter 8. Wasn't it striking there in our reading that they said of Samuel's sons, not that they do not walk in the ways of the Lord, but they do not walk in your ways. Samuel, they're not like you. Yes, Samuel did represent the Lord, but I think it's significant that they, they say, well, Samuel, they're not as good as you are. Instead of saying, Samuel, they're not God's man. And so there's a real weakness within Israel at this time. She's not doing well spiritually. And she looks at the nations around about and says, Ah, here's the answer. If we have a king like the other nations, we'll be strong, we'll be able to fight our enemies, we'll be secure, and we'll be safe. And so this, uh, as it were, movement begins to rise up um, looking for a king. And interestingly, God allows it to happen. That's a warning to us. The psalmist says in a place that if we we can want something and we can ask God for it, and with it he may give us leanness of soul. Because it's not really what he wants. But if we persist and we badger God for something, then God may give it to us. But it may not be the right thing for us. And that is happening here in some measure. He allows Samuel to anoint Saul, and Saul is, you could put it like this, the people's choice. He's the people's king. He's not God's king. And you read the account of Saul's life, and while there are some good things in his life and his reign, This king was not a righteous king. He was not God's king. He reigns for 40 years, but he was, and this is a phrase that I use, he was an affliction to Israel. An affliction to Israel. Um, He failed to obey God. For example, the destruction of the Amalekites. We read about that when you look at um, 1 Samuel uh, the period covering Saul 8 to 15, you'll read there about the Amalekites and the fact that he didn't obey God. Um, you read about him face to face with the Philistines, uh, a neighbouring tribe right down at the bottom of where Israel lived in the southwest, and they're continuing to attack Israel. And what's Saul doing? He's carrying before Goliath, and he won't go out and fight Goliath. Yet he's supposed to be the king of the people. And so here's a man who eventually is rejected by God as king. Uh, And so um, Saul's reign is not um, a a representation uh, of kingship as God intends it. It's a failure. 
the failure. That brings us then to the second king who unites um, uh, Israel. And it is David. And Samuel, again, was responsible for anointing David king. He's the youngest son of Jesse. Uh, And, interestingly, the thing that is emphasized in Scripture is that, in contrast to Saul, who was the people's choice, David is the Lord's choice. The Lord's choice. Read the account, uh, which begins in uh, um, 1 Samuel chapter 16, and you'll see how this comes out again and again. And he's described as a man after God's own heart. Now, we've been doing David in our midweek, and so I'm going to pass over David fairly quickly. But here's what, very briefly, what happened. He enters into Saul's service, and he's like the king, uh, what am I, the phrase I'm looking for is, in the wings. Saul still continues to reign, though he's been rejected by God. But David is now being prepared by the Lord as the Lord's chosen in order to come into the foreground and ultimately take over kingship. Now before that happens, Saul realises that his kingship is at an end. And David's kingship is coming, uh, is beginning to rise. And so Saul hunts and hounds David, the Lord's anointed. And all the time Saul is doing that, he's neglecting the people over which he is king. And so David is the king and waiting. And ultimately then, when, Solomon, when Saul sorry, takes his own life, end of uh, 1 Samuel chapters 28, 29, 30, uh, David becomes king. His uh, reign is covered in 2 Samuel and in 1 Kings chapters 1 and 2. So, 1 Samuel 16 to 30, 2 Samuel, all of it, and 1 Kings chapters 1 and 2. Now, the big thing that David uh, does uh, during his reign is he is an outstanding military leader. And he uh, protects the people. He delivers them from Goliath, even before he's king, the Philistines. Uh, And uh, he leads many wars and he secures the well-being of God's people. That's what the role of the king was. To protect uh, and to rescue from his enemies, from their enemies. And so David is a true king. And his outstanding achievement alongside his military rule is the fact that he brings the people to be a worshipping people in Jerusalem. And he continually sets before them, I am king not by my own authority. I am king not according to my own laws or to do as I wish. I'm king by God's authority. And my calling is to point you again and again to the God of our salvation. And so he brings the place of worship into Jerusalem and you can read about that and the great joy that there is in Israel. And yet here's the tragedy. We've thought about his triumphs. Here's his tragedy. Second Samuel eleven twelve. 12. 
For a very, very brief period in his his kingship, David forgot that he was God's king. Living under God's law. Representing God. And he took the wife of another man. And he slept with her. And he killed her husband. And he told lies. And here we find him not living as the Lord's anointed. Not living as the Lord's king. But he's still the Lord's child. And you see there's an application there, isn't there? To you and me who profess Christ tonight. We can be the Lord's child. And many of us here are. But that we must always, every day, live under Christ the King. We can't do our own thing. We can't look and take and have whatever we want. We are to reflect our King. And if we do otherwise, it will bring tragedy into our lives. And it will be tragic for us and for our families. And so that brings us to the third aspect in David's reign, which was his troubles, his triumphs, his tragedy, and his troubles. Second Samuel 1 to 10 is his triumphs. Second Samuel 11 and 12 is his, his tragedy or temptation. Second Samuel 13 to 24 is his troubles. God, though he forgave David in Christ for his sin, this man is never again what he was before. You see, that's the tragedy of sin. And that's why you and I cannot be careless or casual about sin in our lives. We can't say, I can do this, and then I'll go to God and Christ and be forgiven, and everything will be back to normal. Because sin leaves a scar, and left a major, major scar on David's life and David's reign, because he had sinned in a way that provoked the Lord. To outrage. And so the chastening hand of the Lord was upon him the rest of his life. That brings us then. So here's David. The Lord's anointed. But a disappointment. Disappointment. <coughs> Kingship's broken down again. And that brings us then thirdly to Solomon. The third uniting king. Now we're going to move at a much faster pace when we get into the next headings. But this sets the foundation. Solomon is David's son. And he rules again for 40 years. And it's the golden era in Israel's history. The golden era. All the security that David had brought in the battles that he'd won. That's all there. And there's great prosperity and great wealth that now comes to Israel during the reign of Solomon. Solomon was marked by two things. Remember how when the Lord appeared to him at the beginning of his reign, the Lord said, ask of me whatever you want. And what did he ask for? He asked for wisdom. Wisdom. The Lord gave him wisdom. And that's why with the proverb, as wise as Solomon. That's why with the bigger proverbs. That's why we have Ecclesiastes um, designed to reach an unbelieving world and to challenge an unbelieving world, an atheistic world. Um, But alongside the wisdom, the Lord said, I'm also going to give you wealth. 
didn't ask for it, but I'm going to make you a very wealthy man. And he was. And so Solomon embarks on a huge building program. Um, and the most uh, important part of that building program was the temple. Remember David had centralized worship in Jerusalem and set up the tent where the Lord was to be worshipped. Well now um, Solomon builds a solid structure. Bricks and mortar and wood. The temple as the place of worship. And he does it exactly as the Lord had revealed it to David his father before he died. So here's a man and we read about him as Solomon, Second Samuel chapter two, sorry, First Kings chapters two to eleven. If you look at the column of history, that's the era. Those are the chapters that cover his reign. Uh, and this man, here's how we sum up his life. He started well, but he finished badly. Okay. If any of you have ever been involved in running? You can start a race well, uh, and you can end badly. Uh, and the Christian life is a race, and Solomon began well, asking for wisdom, and he finished badly. And what was it that caused him to finish badly? It wasn't his wealth. It was his wives. This man wasn't happy to have one wife. He chose many wives. And his wives were not from among God's people. That's what made it worse again. He married women from the nations around about. And that was part of the way in which he, he um, increased his wealth. And that was part of the way in which he brought security. But as he married these women, they brought their gods with him. And Solomon began to worship the other gods of the nations around him. That were only dumb idols what a warning to you and me tonight something we learn here from Solomon not to be a Christian who starts the Christian faith well but then somewhere down the road we become diverted by someone else maybe some other person maybe by a relationship you young people a relationship with another with somebody of the opposite sex. And, or maybe it is in our career, we become diverted. And we begin to build for the things of this world. And we can start well. And we can finish badly as Christians. And that's why the New Testament says, run with endurance the race that is marked out for you. So, Saul, a disaster. David, uh, the Lord's anointed, but with a huge scar in his life and trouble to the end of his life. Solomon, yes, again the Lord's anointed, the Lord's chosen, but here again we find a man who gets sidetracked and diverted by the things around him and he ends badly. Another king that is a disappointment in the era of the kings. Let's move then secondly to the divided kingdom. Because what happens is, after 120 years, 
this united kingdom becomes a divided kingdom. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, is the next king in line. But he doesn't have the wisdom of his father. And by this time, those things that Samuel said would happen under Israel's king, they would take your sons and daughters, and you would be working for them. They will levy heavy taxes upon you. They will have you working in all kinds of ways for them. That, in effect, was what was beginning to happen under Solomon. And you see, the people now come to Rehoboam and say, can we have it a bit easier? And Rehoboam very foolishly says, no, no. I like the thought of the power and the glory of being Israel's king. He's a man whose heart There's something wrong in his heart. Is his heart even right with the Lord? And while he is doing that, in the wings is another opposing king rising up in the person of Jeroboam of Nebat. And so what ends up happening is the king is or the kingdom is torn asunder. And Jeroboam takes ten of the tribes and First Kings chapter 11 uh, to 14 and Rehoboam is left with two tribes. And so you have then the divided kingdom and both Jeroboam and Rehoboam are failed kings. So the era of the kings. God's people looking for a king And disappointed every time in Saul, in David, in Solomon, in Rehoboam, in Jeroboam. And so that brings us then, thirdly, to the third era. uh, And um, 932, we're now going to look at each of these kingdoms in turn. Okay, the ten and the two, the northern kingdoms, the ten tribes... Um, called Israel in scripture and the two tribes are in point number four the southern kingdom called or referred to as Judah okay so what about the era of the kings under the northern kingdom look again uh, at uh, the the period um It's a period that covers uh, about 200 years. Just slightly over 200 years. Begins in 932, the northern kingdom. The ten tribes going out on their own. uh, And uh, it lasts through to 722. Now here's what happens to this northern kingdom. As well as a political division that takes place. You see, Jerusalem... The place of worship, where is it? It's away down in the southern kingdom. It's in the place where Rehoboam and his descendants are going to reign. And so Jeroboam says, let's establish places of worship for ourselves. And that's exactly what he did. Um, He put a place of worship in the northern extreme and in the southern extreme. Dan and Bethel. And what was at the centre 
of those places of worship. Two golden calves. Now does that take you back in your mind to a time when there was one golden calf? The time of Moses, when Moses was up the mountain? And you remember Aaron and her, what did they do? They made a golden calf. So here now, what are we having? We're having the ten tribes setting up a place of worship which is ungodly. Which is going to evoke the same kind of judgment as the golden calf did when Israel came out of Egypt and at Mount Sinai. And so the northern kingdom the, the key phrase that we come across again and again in the history of this kingdom over the 210 years as it existed was this. The sins of Jeroboam. The sins of Jeroboam in setting up another centre of worship. Having another God other than the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. The God of Scripture. And again, we're to learn from that. We're living in the day of multi-faith. We're being, it's been bombarded at us, or we're, sorry, we're being bombarded with, us, with it. It's been pushed at us from every angle that there are many gods and there all these many gods will take us to heaven. Scripture says, no, there is one true and living God. And these other gods are idols. And the imaginations of men's minds and the futile thinking and desires of men's hearts and they bring judgment. And we are being warned here. We are being urged here. Do not go the way of the ten tribes. Do not go the way of self um, of worshipping according to our own thoughts, our own ideas. And the interesting thing is that over this 210 year period, there are 18 kings after Jeroboam, and there's not a single one of them that is righteous. Not a single one of them is righteous. The worst of them after Jeroboam is Ahab. Remember he brought in the Baal worship. Gaming came in through the wife that he married. How important it is who we marry. Young people, it's really, really essential that you marry in our Lord Jesus Christ. Not someone who's half-hearted about Christ. Or someone who says, I think about Christ later. If they don't serve Christ now, do not marry them now. It'll be destruction to your faith. And so the Lord, God, is merciful even in the midst of this unbelief and false worship and these unrighteous kings come across now to the column of prophecy. And what does God do? I haven't mentioned here the preaching prophets, Elijah and Elisha. They didn't write a single word. But they were prophets, preaching prophets, sent to Israel to call Israel back from the false gods and the false worship of Dan and Bethel, the golden calves, and to call them back to the Lord God. 
their king. And Elijah and Elisha, they did many mighty things and they stood fast in Israel and yet their witness had no universal or widespread effect. And that brings us then to Amos and to Micah and to Zia. These are the main prophets who spoke to Israel. So if you're going to read Amos tomorrow, or Micah next month, or Hosea in six months' time, realize who they were. Prophets to the nation of Israel, speaking to the ten tribes about their golden calves and about their false worship, and seeking to call them back to the Lord. So, what does God do? Yes, for 210 years he allows this nation to go its own way. He raises up preaching prophets and writing prophets. Um, and they speak to the nation. The nation ignores. And the point comes when God raises up Assyria, a neighbouring nation. And this nation invades the ten tribes. Israel uh, destroys them. Scatters the people, carries them away to the four winds, and there's never any restoration. There's no return for Israel. That brings us then, fourthly and finally this evening, to the southern kingdom. What about the two tribes? What about the two that have David as their and the source of their kingship, and Solomon, and then there's somebody from David's family right the way down through. Well, this um, uh, part of the kingdom, the southern kingdom, 932, remember, is when the division took place. Go down to 586, and you're talking about a period of 350 years. Okay, the two tribes, they continue beyond uh, the days of Solomon for 350 years. That's about 150 years more than the northern kingdoms. Now look at what is happening. They're based in Jerusalem. Around Jerusalem, what do we have in Jerusalem? We have the temple. The place of true worship. The place where the glory of God is. The place where the prophets are. And the priests are. And there are 19 kings that reigned during this period after Rehoboam from Abijah down to Zedekiah. Read Second Kings and First Kings and you'll and the chapters that are, are mentioned there and you will read about these kings. Now the frustrating thing is when you come to read about these kings is you get the northern king and the southern king and the northern king and the southern king and it's quite hard to follow them and that's why I've put it out in that way uh, that hopefully uh, you'll be able to uh, it'll make it a little bit easier. James, uh, Julie showed me a, a book that he has just before the service began and there's, in the front page there's a, a, a diagram showing all the kings in the north and the south. So there's a wee tip for you. If you want to follow the kings, see James afterwards and he'll maybe provide us all with a photocopy of it. So, now, what about these 19 kings then? They're descended from David. Are they going to be like David? And like Solomon, men of God, albeit flawed and imperfect, well the reality is only about ten of the nineteen kings were righteous. Only about ten of the nineteen um, served the Lord, 
and honoured the Lord in their kingship. Chief among those who honoured the Lord were Hezekiah, Josiah, Jehoshaphat, Joash, Amaziah, Uzziah and Jotham. Those were the main ones that served the Lord. The rest didn't. And there were nine who refused to worship God. Nine descended from David. And supposedly pointing forward to the king who was to come. And they do not worship the Lord God who would brought them out of Egypt. Who would saved their forefathers. Who had constituted the church. Who had placed the temple. Who had put his glory there. And his whole revelation of himself there. And they said we don't want that. And they actively participate in idolatry. And the key phrase that we read of this prayer and of the southern kingdom is the high places. There were high places. Places of false worship. So here you have the southern kingdom, the place of true worship in Jerusalem, but you have all these places of false worship scattered around the place and nine of the nineteen kings, they preferred to go to those high places of false worship than to go to the place of true worship in Jerusalem. And you see, you and I today, within Christianity, we have to make a choice. There is true worship. And places where Christ is exalted today within his church, and there are churches where he is not exalted today. And we have got to make a choice. And we've got to choose. Not only between the true God of Scripture and forsake the false gods of our world, but even within the Christian church, there's a choice that we have to make. Now the worst among these kings was Manasseh. And he was the son of Hezekiah, a good king. He was the Ahab of the south. And his sins were the final straw in Judah's decline. In 2 Kings 21, 10-15, God says, I am going to destroy the two tribes, Judah. I'm going to send them into captivity because of Manasseh's sins. They have provoked me to the point of no return. It's a very serious thing for anyone to provoke God. It's a serious thing for us to provoke God to wrath. And so, again, God is gracious and he's merciful. Look now at the list of prophets that he raises up in Judah for Judah. And these prophets are going to call the kings. They're going to call the people back to their covenant obligations to the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. The God who has promised that there's one who will come from them who will save his people. The prophets are speaking into the nation. Obadiah, Joel, Isaiah, Micah, Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Habakkuk. Again, if you're going to read those Old Testament prophets, you need to understand they're speaking into Judah. And so we'll look at what happens. In 586 BC, the Lord raises up Babylon to take Judah away. Uh, and uh, we read about that 
uh, in um, 2 Kings chapters, uh, towards chapter 17 to 24, uh, and the massive, massive suffering that the people experienced because they turned away from the Lord their God. So, what do we have in the southern kingdom? Well, it's not a picture of complete failure of the kings, but it is a picture of repeated and ongoing failure of the kings. So, where we left with the era of the kings? Well, we're left with disappointment, aren't we? Disappointment and failure. And why is that? Because these kings are not the true king. And these kings um, are fallen, sinful men uh, and who need the true king. And so that's why in the final column then we have anticipations of Jesus. Because every one of these kings, they themselves need to look to the Christ who will come. Uh, and they themselves need to give way as kings to the Christ who is the true king. Um, Matthew uh, chapter 21 and we read there in verse 9 we read of them crowds shouting the son of David Hosanna the son of David. You see the crowds recognised that the true king would come from the southern kingdom would come from the family of David. He would rescue and save the family of David. Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 uh, sorry, Matthew chapter 2 verse 1 describes Jesus as the son of David. Uh, and uh, in uh, Jesus' trial and crucifixion what did Pilate say to the Jews about Jesus? Behold your king. And you see, the era of the kings, we've got to allow it to vanish into the background. And we've got to look to the era of the king, Jesus Christ, and behold him. Because it is in him that you and I will find one who not only saves us from our sins, but one who always does righteously by us. One who will always defend you. One who will never disappoint you. You'll never waken up tomorrow and find that he has sinned as David sinned with a woman. Or as Solomon sinned with women. Or as the other kings sinned in going after other gods. He was one who lived a sinless life on this earth. And so he is the one to whom all these kings must look and to whom all these kings must point. He's the one to whom you and I must look also, not only as our saviour, but as our king. The one who subdues us, as the catechism says, to himself. To himself. The one who rules over us. And the one who defends us against all our enemies. And so tonight, let's allow the era of the kings to fade into the background. 
And let's hold in the forefront of our minds the era of King Jesus and love him and serve him with all our heart, knowing that he is tonight the King of all the earth. And one day every knee will bow before him. And every tongue will confess. And the important thing is that we are confessing it gladly and willingly. Because in that day there will be many, many people who will confess it with gritted teeth and with anger and frustration. Because now they know what they refused to believe when they were in this earth. If you're not a Christian tonight, don't be in that group on that day. But come now before the King. And as we sang in our opening psalm, fall down before him and worship him and receive him and serve him with your whole heart and your whole life. Behold your King, Jesus. Amen. We thank you, Almighty God, for the man of your right hand. We thank you for Jesus, our Saviour, the Son of Man, whom you strengthened as your own. The one who lived on this earth the sinless life we cannot live. The one who died at Calvary, the shameful death for sin, taking the judgment of hell that we deserve to die. We thank you, Lord God, that in him we are saved, we have been saved, and we will be saved. May your face shine upon us through him every day. Help us, Lord God, tonight to take away from this era of the kings the anticipation and the need that there was from that era for one to come who would be a sinless man, who would be the perfect king. We thank you that we live in the era of King Jesus, that there is today another king. Help us to love him with all our heart, to obey him, to follow him and to serve him, because as we do that, he will bring us surely and truly into your kingdom and into your dwelling place. Bless your word, O God, to our lives. We pray for any who do not believe that are here tonight, that they might be brought tonight by the King to bow down and to worship and to serve him, to trust him as Saviour. We pray for any tonight who are here who may be wandering from the King and who are like Solomon and like David, falling into sin, Father, we pray that you would rescue them in Christ and draw them back again from the King, that they would not bring tragedy and trouble into their lives by departing from the Lord Jesus, their King. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you 
and give you peace. Amen.